So I think like sometimes we have to hear that we're a fool, you know, like God is saying here, wisdom is trusting God for salvation, not working for it. It's, uh, it, it is not storing up things like years of walking with Jesus perfectly. Like we're not storing that up to our benefit. We're trying to live as though God's grace is sufficient. Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week we walk through a few passages in light of the gospel before looking at a, but what about, part of the Bible that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. Chris and Laura, it's good to see your digital faces here on my screen again for another episode of the Red Tree Pod. How how are things since I saw your digital faces last? What's been going on? Chris, how about you? Not too much. I got to make sure all my filters are on, though. My nice polished filters for my face. Oh, yeah. Well, how do you do that on Zoom? Let's see. Just kidding. I don't do that. For the record, <laughs> I don't do that. I don't think. Um, Anti-filter? Yeah, doing, doing, uh, maybe... <laughs> Doing pretty well. It's colder. Um, first snow in Minnesota. So I don't know, Laura, how Michigan is weather-wise right now, but we had our first, first kind of surprise snow. I'm, I find I'm, oh, I'm never really ready for snow, uh, the first snow. I don't care if it comes in December or October. I don't think I've you ever You and the I, rest of the drivers in Minnesota, I'll probably, say. Never probably. Ready. Yeah. Ready. I had to get my 17-year-old daughter kind of ready for winter driving. It's like her first winter pretty much driving. So we had a good talk about defensive driving and all that. But uh, yeah, but it's uh, it, it's okay. I, I'm not a, a snow hater. I'm not a snow lover, I guess. But I I don't know. That first snow, I'm never quite ready for. Um, but but here we are. So maybe there's some grace in that. God shows up when he wants to, right? So that's that's a good thing. I not, think the grace is in the defensive driving that you're teaching your daughter. And I, I think I'd pay to be a fly on the wall yeah. in that car while you're <laughs> well, are you Are you teaching her certain expletives or what, is <laughs> what does this mean? Get out I, of the way! <laughs> I think I'm Just teaching her things cars. she already knows. You know, I'm probably, I'm kind of the dad okay. who, I know you know this, but... I don't, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that you remember. And so it's almost more for me just feeling better about sending her out, uh, onto the road with all the, all the Texans and Southerners who've moved here since the summer and have no idea what's going on. So, um, yeah, anyway, she made, she made it to school and back quite well yesterday. So, so thankful for that. But, but how are you two doing? Um, well, I had the privilege of being reminded, I guess, not just figuring it out, but being reminded that I am not as young as I used to be. <laughs> um, I volunteered at a family fair about a week and a half ago, and that meant that I was doing this game for the kids. And I was like, we'll just do this simple bean toss game, like super like the beanbag toss game. Um, and then I realized that just meant that I was going to be kneeling and then sitting and then standing just on repeat for four and a half hours. 
Um, and my knees did not like it and they were swollen for about a week after. And I regretted my age at that moment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just felt so bad because like the further into it, like the more I was like grunting and like, (laughs) like, let me just grab these for you. Like, or just, you know, I eventually brought my 10 year old over. I was like, okay, give them back the bean bags. (laughs) I'm just going to sit here with the candy bucket and (laughs) you're up (laughs) totally fine. Oh man! It's a good reminder that I am not a the athlete that I once was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I relate. I'm with you on team knee pain. Look at what's <laughs> happening to us. Uh, my knee pain started about two months ago and has only gotten worse. And it's, I'm mourning it. I oh, I'm like looking for anything and everything to cure knee pain because you feel it everywhere. If you want to play with your kids, if you want to. Uh, walk upstairs. I feel it when I'm sleeping. It wakes me up sometimes. I'm like, geez, weakest part of my body. And so I started being more vocal about it and just sharing my knee pain. Maybe it's because I'm a, I don't know, chronic complainer, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> but you wouldn't you wouldn't believe how one how many people have knee pain. I mean, just look at us, Laura. We're just complaining about it together, <laughs> commiserating. But then uh, you know people are quick with the solutions, and uh, one of them has been the knees over toes guys. Have you ever heard of this this guy? He's a YouTuber. Uh, maybe he's maybe he's a special guest today. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> no, he's his whole thing was um, he injured himself in his twenties or thirties with a knee, and they said you'll never play sports again. And he kind of made it his life's passion to figure out how to make his knees like the strongest part of his body. And he's got all these videos of him now working with professional athletes and training that very, uh, basically his, what healed his knees. And the the first thing he tells people is walk backwards for 10 minutes and then do these kind of reverse calf raises. But I've been trying it and I, you guys know I work here in downtown Minneapolis. And so I go outside in public and I'm walking backwards for 10 minutes and I just, I feel like a crazy person uh, because all these cars are driving by and I just wonder like, what are they thinking as they watch this person just walk by the U.S. Bank Stadium completely backwards? Just sometimes I have my AirPods in and yeah, what a sight that would be. So that's me. If you're listening and you've seen somebody walking backwards at the U.S. Bank Stadium, I'm trying to fix my knees. (laughs) Oh, speaking of knee pain, let's read the Bible. Um, I don't get paid for my transitions. I just give them. I just give them. Uh, we're today yes. going to be hanging out in Joshua 10, specifically the passage dealing with the Amorite kings. Our psalm is going to be chapter 33, and then we're going to continue in 2 Corinthians 12 before we close out with the parable of the rich fool as our but what about section. And that is a, uh, that's a tricky passage, one that we even enjoyed discussing a little bit beforehand of like, how do you, why don't you give me the answer on this one? This one's a little tricky. <laughs> I defer. I defer. I defer. I defer. You go, you go. Uh, but let's begin with Joshua 10, uh, just to locate this section of the Bible. This comes right after the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that really outline God creating the world and then giving promises to his people after they fell into sin. And one of those promises has to do with the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses being the one who's unable to bring them into this promised land, but one who comes after him, namely Joshua, 
who the book is named after. And so here we are in Joshua 10. They've entered the land. They're starting to get some prominence within this area, so much so that another king in the area comes in and seeks Joshua's help to uh, defeat his own enemies, a group of pagan kings, an alliance of them, actually. And God promises to deliver this alliance into Joshua's hands uh, without a single one of them surviving. That's in verse 8. And it happens quite miraculously. You have uh, a a pretty uh, non-human military strategy here. In fact, it's mighty hailstones that are hurled down by God. And then you have things like the sun standing still and this victory that just comes from above. Uh, it's a it's a big deal. Um, and let, yeah, let me park there and let you guys talk a little bit about Joshua 10 and how how do we understand what is happening here and why does it matter here in the 21st century? Um, well, if I may, um, I'm going to just scoot right to the end of the passage there. So verses 22 through 27. Um, we see some pretty cool imagery there. Uh, well, I guess it's terrible imagery, but it's <laughs> but it's cool, terrible. It's cool, <laughs> it's cool for us as readers. Weird now, choice of words. Yeah. Uh, it's great on this side of the cross. We'll say that. Um, we see that the five kings that kind of join this alliance against Joshua and the Israelites. It didn't go so well for them. Uh, they tried to hide in a cave. They were found and pulled out of the cave. In verse 26, it says that Joshua put them to death and he hung them on five trees. And then once that was done and good, um, they so they hung on the trees until evening. And then Joshua took them down. They put them back in the cave that they were hiding in and then rolled a big stone in front of it. And it even says, which remains to this very day. Um Pretty cool. I feel like it's really helpful when you're looking at typology like this in the Bible to remember that the Bible really isn't linear. I feel like we look at it as a book and we read it from beginning to end, or that's how we think we're supposed to read it. And it just that the story is going to play like that. But really with the, the biblical text, the beginning and the end is really kind of right at the Gospels. And so if you imagine this kind of flat line, and then a hill right under the Gospels under the cross, um, which in and of itself, right, the cross was on a hill. And then the story of the Bible kind of flowing out from both sides. So it's flowing towards Revelation, flowing back towards Genesis, and then kind of flowing up and back to the cross. So then you can kind of see then that the rest of the Bible is kind of pulling meaning from the cross at the same time as it's reflecting um, back us back to the cross. Uh, so it's kind of like a circular uh, weather pattern, I guess, is, is what it kind of reminds me of. Um, a cool, just, terrible weather pattern at that. A cool, terrible <laughs> weather pattern. Um, and just so you know, I know you can't see us, but I'm doing a lot of flailing with my hands right now. <laughs> so just imagine that. That will really help you. <laughs> See I think that image is, is very picture. helpful. It, <laughs> yeah, for real. That's really cool. Um, so in that kind of that image really helped me when it came to stories like this, where before I would have read it and just been like, oh, this is this is what happened. And and now the Israelites are in Canaan and, and we're just going to keep reading. 
But now that kind of gives us the freedom of seeing the cross in stories like this. So when you see people being hung on trees, uh, anytime you have like trees or wood or poles or anything like that, especially in the Old Testament, and especially when it's saying that people are being hung up or strapped to or caught up them, um, it's very much okay to kind of direct that to the cross. Um, especially when you have these kings who are hung on a tree, left there till evening, taken down, put in a cave, and a stone rolled in front of it. I think if you're at all familiar with the story of Jesus's death, um, that should kind of ring some bells and sound super familiar. Um, and so it's just kind of helping us see what's coming. And the beauty of that is then you can see God will just put this story on repeat, on repeat. It's so important. It's the only story that matters in the Bible. And he's just given us so many opportunities to see it just in its glory. Um, I do like that it does say that that stone remains there to this very day, um, where we know that the stone in Jesus's tomb was rolled away, um, mm. not by the mm. power of men, um, but by the power of God and now we can spend eternity with him. And even that you can see in this story, because like David said, the context of this is them coming into Canaan and coming into the promised land. And even the, the king that started this alliance was the king of Jerusalem at the time. And so the deaths of these kings is pre just preceding rest and so you know mm. them in their promised land and salvation from slavery which they just came out of um and that can kind of fast forward us to the death of our king jesus who that preceded our rest and salvation and freedom in the promised land which is him ultimately that's really great. Yeah, I one of the things that I you reminded me of, Laura, is that you get in the Old Testament like this then is stories that are reminiscent of Jesus, but there's always something there that's not that doesn't quite match, that's not as good, right? Or or beautiful or powerful. And I think that stone, like you mentioned, maybe some other pieces to this too, that make you long for a better version of it. So it's never a one-to-one, but it's a, as the Bible says, a shadow to reality kind of relationship. And shadows, as we know, are never perfect reflections of the reality or the thing or the substance that makes that shadow. And so seeing that is uh, very important to make the connections and to see Jesus in the Old Testament, but also to long for the better versions of, of these things. One thing I love about this story too, earlier or before that in verses 13 or maybe 12 and following, uh, I guess through 15 roughly, is when Joshua uh, commands the sun to stand still. And in verse 13, it says, so the sun stood still, like just like it's no big deal. Like, oh, and then it just happened. And the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. And then uh, skipping down a verse or two in 14, it says, there has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And uh, to me, when I see that, those kind of things always stick out in narrative where it says this never happened before. And I think the implication is never since uh, until we get to Jesus, who the son of, who is the son of God, who took on flesh and became a human being, 
who God the Father especially turned an ear to. And so to me, this is reminiscent of how Jesus is our advocate, how he speaks on our behalf, how he commands things into being, namely our salvation, how he he talks to his father and says, this one is with me. I, I love him. I love her. Let me suffer that they might be uh, consoled and comforted and, and brought to our tables. They might dine with us uh, forever and, and live with us forever. Um, and Joshua then being a type of Christ, who in Hebrews 4, I think you see that as well, which helps when the, the, the New Testament makes those connections. So Joshua being a rest giver. Uh, Jesus being the fulfillment of of that idea, being a rest giver, an ultimate Sabbath giver, but that Sabbath not being a law or a physical thing once a week, but an eternal soul rest, Matthew 11 says, that would be every day and into eternity where Jesus would be that, that ultimate, ultimate Sabbath. But I think with that too, him not being a Levite is really important. He isn't a man of the law here, Joshua, but he is a man who stood apart from Moses. And Moses is dead at this point. He was kept out of the land, but Joshua entered as a non-Levite. Joshua, or Jesus then in the same way would be a non-Levite. He's a Judahite. He's one who the law pointed to, but Jesus came not associated with the law. He came to save apart from the rules and apart from demanding and apart from the stipulations and the written code. Instead, he came to save on the basis of his blood alone. Hmm. This, uh, the only thing I think I'd add to the midst of this Joshua 10, how do you understand what's happening here? Um, is painting some of the the broad brushstrokes of the story, and especially if you're reading this for the first time through, there there is this like who is going to be the guy, the guy that was promised in the in the old story, the original um, gospel promise we have for all the way back to Genesis three fifteen when God says there's going to be one born of woman who's going to crush the serpent's head, and he's going to bruise the heel of this Messiah like figure. And if, if, again, if it's your first time through, you're coming across this Joshua story and you see Joshua as one who's brought the people into the promised land and having some pretty swift, easy military victory over these enemies, quote unquote, of God and his people. And then in the story, you have Joshua drawing forward these enemy kings, drawing them out and telling his people, I think it's in verses 22 through 24, saying, come near to his own men. Put your feet on the necks of these kings before we kill them. It's this very visual image that sounds like Genesis 3.15 being lived out of like, oh, this could be the guy. This is the one who was promised about. And of course, they kill these kings. And then it's after they kill these kings that they go and take over the their their uh, kingdoms that these kings represented. And you're thinking, man, this this, this might be it. Was this, was this all we needed to do is enter this promised land and take on these enemy kings? And of course, you finish the the end of the story of Joshua with his death and demise and Israel being in a whole heap of a mess. In fact, the next book is what? Judges, uh, which is kind of a doozy. It's a doozy. It's a pretty cool, terrible book. Pretty cool, terrible. Uh, where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes and uh, they, they things spring from bad to worse and spiral out of control as sin just continues to run rampant in human beings' hearts. And so um, Josh was clearly not the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, but you fast forward again to the New Testament, and I'm thinking of Laura's awesome image with that the flailing arms cross 
uh, weather system uh, is you, you see when Jesus sends his disciples out to uh, two by two to cast demons out, they come back and they're just exhausted with excitement, right? Of like, it worked. We were able to cast these enemies out and like, we're, we're the ones doing it. And Jesus is like, listen, this is happening because of what's about to take place where I'm going to reverse uh, the very story itself by uh, taking on the death that these five kings uh, experience in Joshua 10 so that the final blow to the enemy's head can can happen. But it is going to be in my own death as well. And that's the great surprise of the universe that brings about uh, actual entrance and uh, long-term residence in the promised land so that we're never going to get kicked out, that the residents... The residence of the promised land is not a zip code that's geographic, uh, but one of of lasting uh, substance for all of us who would claim the name of the Messiah who died in our place, uh, which is just that's fun to see that here in Joshua 10. Uh, with this in mind, or with uh, what was my last transition? Something about knees. Let's talk about knees <laughs> and about Psalm knees. 33. <laughs> uh, we have an untitled and unauthored Psalm here in Psalm 33. Perhaps it's David. Um, but it's an invitation to praise the person and work of God. Uh, several times it comes up, uh, even beginning, just saying, calling all people to praise God with skill. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Um, I, I want to draw out just one thing and then you guys dig into wherever you want to go here with Psalm 33. But one of the things that I experience in different theological circles, uh, which if that makes your eyes glaze over, uh, what I mean by that is if you maybe lean more left politically and even theologically, I just find that the tendency is to believe that God is kind of everywhere and all the time. In theological terms, it's God's eminence, that he's just kind of always present and ready to do something. And that's that's a really good thing. And then on the other end of the political and theological spectrum, uh, for whatever reason, they often go hand in hand, you have more of a transcendent picture of God and, and a real treasuring of God as other than us, that he's so much bigger, he's so much wiser. You're prone to quote Isaiah 55 more often of like his plans are so much greater than ours. He's so much higher than us. And that's really good news too. Um, but often both of these present the one side at the expense of the other, that God's imminence is often presented as at the expense of, man, he's so much different and so much bigger than us. And likewise, the bigness of God often comes with a subtraction of his ability to work in the here and now in the midst of the very hard and present things in your life. And I I just hear Iron Man in the original uh, sequence saying, why not both? <laughs> right. Like these are <laughs> these are really good things to have hand in hand. And I think <laughs> even the person of Jesus is one who embodies that regularly. Right. Hundred percent God, hundred percent man, hundred percent transcendent, hundred percent imminent. And Psalm 33 has that. The, the new song that we're invited to sing is based 
definitely on the transcendence of God. Let me read to you a few verses that show that. It's starting in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, okay? Pacific Ocean into a jar, <laughs> puts it on a shelf. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nation. He's, nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of the heart, of his heart throughout all generations. So unequivocally, you have this divine transcendent picture of God that he's so other than us and so much bigger. And, and, and just thinking about that in the midst of a stressful situation in your life, it actually does bring a lot of comfort that there is a holy, sovereign, transcendent God who looks out across the whole universe and he just goes... I got this, right? That's that's really comforting. And yet it doesn't leave us there. Let me read verse 16 to the end. It says this, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from, the death, from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So twice you hear God's unfailing love as eminent, right? It's present. It's something you can rely on in the here and now, in the midst of your actual life and the troubles that you feel right now. And one of the access points to that is to just say the trouble out loud. This is what I'm struggling with. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a prayer directly to God or to a friend at a coffee shop or in a small group. But do not mm. divorce these things. Transcendence and eminence are friends, not enemies. Yeah, if anything there, just to kind of further click on that same idea, I'd love how there's movement uh, from the former things, the transcendent things to love as well. And you're kind of getting at this too, Davis, but just lo love is very personal. And it's not, you know, I, I think of a, one of my first experiences reading, reading theology was a systematic theology book. And a lot of them have chapters in there about the characteristics of God. And they label them, they categorize them. There's a chapter for each one, you know, and it, it can be really helpful, of course, uh, to study that way and understand these things system, systematically. But um, alone, they, they don't mean as much as the personal side, you know, like the story isn't just that God has love in him or even that he is love, as the New Testament says, which is better news, but that he became a human being so that he could love us in personal ways and touch us when we were leprous and look and wipe tears from our eyes and and lay down stones and tell others to lay down stones when they were getting ready to stone the adulteress, you know, and advocate for us and all those things and more. And I think that's what Psalm 33 then is looking ahead to. It's it's not just that God is loving, but that he became uh, the ultimate lover, you know, as a bridegroom and, and one to lay his life down for us. Because he's, as he, he himself says in John 15, 13, that this is the epitome of love. This is the greatest form of love, that that a man lay, lay his life down for his friends, ultimately saying, yes, that can kind of happen in a physical way, human to human, but never really that well and never really that perfectly. It's really ultimately me that will that will epitomize and and put forth the best expression of love. And that's the true that's what that's where imminence becomes the best good news then, is that the transcendent God became 
became imminent in, in that way for us. And it's unfailing, as the psalm says, which I really love too. Uh, may your love, not just love, but unfailing love be with us. That's very personal, right? That, that, that's something that's the, the longing of the heart here for the psalmist is that this love would walk, walk the earth and actually be with us and speak to speak our language so we could understand him and ultimately lay his life down for us so we could sing that new song and we could have that access to his glory without being crushed by it. That's awesome, Chris. I just love all that. And I, I feel like I'm just going to let that thought stay there because I think <laughs> it's such a good word. Um, but I'm going to hop <laughs> on a different lily pad in this pond. Mm. Um and just because I, I think it's pretty cool when you can kind of see certain threads running through the text. Um, and so in this psalm, we kind of have the juxtaposition of God's work in creation in verses six through nine, uh, how he created everything with just a word and just a breath um, and just the hugeness of that. And then we have our works in verses 16 and 17 and how they aren't so great it's talking about how the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So we kind of have the same story that we just saw play out in Joshua 10 with these massive armies from these five different kings kind of coming up against the people of God. And they fail. They fail miserably. It's not even like they went home and licked their wounds, like they were obliterated. Um, and so you have kind of the same message that we saw there that was forwarding us to the cross here in a different genre. Here we get it in poetry and in song, but it's the same thing pointing us to the same place, the sufficiency of God and the insufficiency of our own strength. And that in and of itself is such a balm for our souls because I think we are bent on trying to build things up in order to feel safe and secure. I mean, we don't have, you know, personally in my life, I don't have a great army or a war horse. I mean, I feel like I'm lacking. Um, what? You don't? Weird. <laughs> I know. You guys You're probably so do. I, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so ashamed. Um, but I do have a 401k. And I do have my family and I do have my job. And these are things that I know that I have a tendency to put my hope and my secureness in because they are right here. They're tangible. Um, and it feels good. Like the, the more that goes into my retirement fund, the, the less I have to stress, right? Um, but I feel like if you've lived on this planet for more than a day, you probably know like things are not guaranteed. Um, and we know that, you know, in our head, but sometimes it takes a, a while for our heart to catch up. And so to be able to go back to texts like these and see that, you know, at the end of the day, our strength doesn't really matter. It's God's strength and it's just all encompassing and it's for us. You know, it, it could very well be that his strength is against us and that would be terrifying, but his strength is for us and he's used the strength to pull us out of the, the depths of hell. Um, and so it's a very calming thought, despite, the, you know, the stock market, whatever, taking all of my retirement fund away and whatever. But um, just to have this sureness that is outside of ourselves. Um, is such a good thing, especially right now. 
Uh, and speaking of strength or false strengths, uh, we turn to Second Corinthians 12. That was a better transition. I'll give myself credit for that one. Uh, I'm pretty sure I did that one, but <laughs> you're right. You're right. Give credit where it's due. Thank you, cool and terrible Laura. Uh, I still don't right. have a warhorse. Second <laughs> Corinthians 12, uh, one through ten. Paul begins by saying, "I must go on boasting." Now, if you did get a chance to listen to last episode of the Red Tree Pod, the reason he's saying this is he just went on this tirade of boasting in chapter eleven. Uh, but it was a surprising form of boasting, right? It was him taking on these super apostles and then saying, oh, I can I can boast all the more. Uh, in fact, I can wipe the floor with these guys and their resumes, but I'm going to boast about things that they don't boast about, like being beaten by rods or five times receiving 40 lashes minus one or once getting stoned, uh, not the Colorado kind, right? Like the not, not feeling good kind, uh, real objects being thrown at me <laughs> to the point of death and being dragged out. Uh, three times being shipwrecked, spending a night and day at open sea, constantly on the move and danger, 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 danger in so many different forms and anxiety and weakness. That was chapter 11. And so chapter 12, he says, I'm going to continue. I'm going to go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. So this is the category of boasting that he's going to head into. And he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, pause. Uh, he's talking about himself. Uh, so I know a guy and it was me uh, and he's caught up in the third <laughs> heaven. This this isn't like a, a picture of uh, like scaffolding in heaven, though. Uh, I think that's sometimes where people go with this. And it's like there are even some religious traditions that are not Christian that would say like there are levels of heaven. And he's I don't think he's trying to get after that at all. Uh, but I'll let the text speak. He says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations." Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties for when I am weak... Then I am strong. I just felt like I had to read that. There's just so much, yeah. uh, so much in there. So um, what, one more side note, I think, is the the weakness that he's talking about, or the messenger from Satan. Um, it, it's likely a physical thing. You know, you've heard all sorts of different uh, attempts at categorizing. What was this? Was it uh, internet porn or his type of you know sexual preferences? I've I've truly heard all of these before. <laughs> and uh, it's likely none of those. Uh, although we can at least we at least can rule out the internet, uh, most certainly. Probably. Um, but it's most likely a physical deformity, right? He's talking about comparing himself to these super apostles who are really impressive, likely pretty good looking, and really good at talking. And so when Paul's standing next to them, it's pretty obvious that he's not impressive looking. 
and he wants whatever that thing is, whether it's a, you know, some type of limp or bad eyesight or just really, I don't think it's terrible, like terribly ugly. Uh, but he's like, God, just take this thing, whatever it is, just take this thing away from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, wh- what do you guys yeah. want to talk about here in, in 2 Corinthians 12? Well, I could just piggyback quick on that and say, I think that that's what makes Paul's argument, I think, so rich on a testimonial level too. But linking that with his encouragement for the church is that, you know, he's saying, I have ascended higher than the super apostles. And again, we don't know the nature of this ascent to the third heaven, which is essentially just heaven. uh, But we know that it's very rare. And Ezekiel may have had that. Some of the prophets, you know, kind of the the curtains were pulled back a bit and they could see things that very few humans have been able to see, you know, on on this side of death, essentially. Um, But Paul's saying, somehow I got that experience and I've ascended higher than they. And I'll kind of play on their, you know, field for a second and just say, if they're boasting, well, then let me boast for a second too, like you were saying, Davis. Um, And yet it isn't, isn't it significant that I've never made this a thing, you know, for mm. you? I've never talked about this before uh, with anyone, especially you, this this church I love and and to whom I brought a very simple and sufficient gospel. Uh, it's not just about humility. It's it's because these things, these these ideas of religious going up, religious mm. ascent, uh, my mystical religious experiences that are a picture of that, they are not the center of Christianity. Jesus is. Uh, I am not better for having the visions, and you are not less. I am not better for my works, and you are not less for yours. Jesus is all that matters. And so that, then I think he kind of pulls back away from this place of boasting, which he doesn't want to do. And we know that. It's just, it's more of a, he's just, again, he's trying to meet them on their level to show how ridiculous they're boasting in their strength and their works and their polished Christian lives are, you know, how good orators they are. He's saying, you don't need any of that. Like, you know, the the fruit that's born comes from him anyway. So it's enough just to be in him and to be weak. So we we can boast in being bad at stuff, which is crazy. You know, this is the, 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 the opposite of every other religious worldview to say, I'm boasting in things I'm bad at and and Mm. being persecuted and being misunderstood and difficulties and I think a lot of that, like you're saying, Davis, I think a lot of that is ministry work. You know, it's ministry is difficult. You know, I, I'm not good at these things sometimes. I, I screw up sometimes. Uh, but he's saying when I'm weak, I'm actually strong. I picture and position myself as a Christ figure more in my weakness, actually, that, than I do in my successes and, and my strength. Yeah, for sure. I I love this passage. It's pretty personal for me. Um, just because of my own journey to understanding God's grace, um, and the power and the life changing, um, effect that that can have on people. Because for a long time, I thought that was me, (laughs) um, to give you a background of, of my own life. I, Went to a Catholic grade school, a Lutheran high school, a Reformed college where I majored in theology. Um, I was the head of women's ministries after that, started several moms groups, um, was teaching women at retreats, all, you know, all of these good things, quote unquote. Um, and 
it, it was exhausting because at that moment in my life, I was really trying to be a really good player on Jesus's team, right? Um, to do all of these good things because that is what I thought was going to reach people. Um, and then a few years ago, um, I've written about this on the blog, so maybe you know, but a few years ago, things kind of just broke in my life. Um, and I ended up in the psych ward for just over a week. Um, I lost everything while I was there. I could see my husband once a day. I couldn't talk to my kids. I obviously could not volunteer at the church. I couldn't go to church. I couldn't see um, my family of believers. Um, and I really, I mean, it was terrifying and dizzying and exhausting all just all all of that all the time. Um, but I really had to come to terms. What then? Um, what am I good for? <laughs> right? Because I couldn't do all of these things that I, I had been killing myself trying to do. Um, and it's verses like these where Jesus is saying, like, my grace is sufficient for you. I really had to think about that. Like when I everything else in my life has been stripped away, does this verse still ring true? And that was a hard thing to chew on um, during those eight days. Um, I was allowed to have my Bible. So that's kind of what I did when I had the energy to do anything. Um, and I really had to just kind of like see, is that enough when I don't have my family? I don't have my church. Is it just Jesus at the end of the day? And honestly, that brokenness, that time in my life, I look on it with such fondness because I have never felt so much peace in my life than I did in Station 32 at the U of M psych ward. Um, even to this day, when we're praising God in worship, I close my eyes and I'm back there because I saw just how life-changing his grace was, his word was, and that it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with, with what I was killing myself trying to do in his name and be a great team player or whatever it was. Um, and I think since then, since kind of releasing my white knuckle grip on, on the works that I was trying to do, um, I think that part of my story has been able to reach people more because I was no longer calling them to be awesome for God and look at all these great things I'm doing and you should join me and all these things. But it was just like, look at how broken I am and how amazing God still is despite it. Um, and just how much more he could shine in that brokenness um, than he ever could when I was getting in, in his way with whatever it is I was trying to bring to the table. Um, I just, I, I really do thank God for that time that for that whole time. Um, I mean, it's ongoing all the time, but I really think that being able to have a moment in your life where you can just really just sit in just God, um, that, that is where heart change just blossoms. I feel like. Wow. 
And I, I know personally, Laura, your story has uh, resonated deeply with me in so many ways in your writing, uh, but also even in, when I, every time I hear you talk about the Bible, I'm like, oh, she's got something I've never seen before. <laughs> it's, uh, and it, it looks like Second Corinthians 12. It looks like coming to yeah. the end of your rope and then finding mm-hmm. a new storehouse of, of riches from mercy and grace that you mm-hmm. can't find on your own. Mm-hmm. Um which is amazing. So I appreciate you even Amen. telling us about that right now, giving us some more of the details. Um, let's let's look at the, the tricky parable here in Luke 12. So this is the parable of the rich fool. And uh, for first time listeners, this is a time of our podcast and we, we call it a but what about? Because uh, even the, the, the three passages we just looked at and how we let the gospel and specifically Jesus's cross come underneath to help us interpret uh, there are those sections of the Bible that just feel like, does that fly here? Does the cross have something to say in a passage that's telling you directly to do something? Uh, we think, yes, uh, we haven't yet found one where that hasn't been the case, and, and yet we're always open. So if you want to even submit one where we, you think you got a gotcha, let us know. Uh, but this is in Luke 12, and it's verses, uh, let's see, let me read verses 16 to 21. It says, it says, Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now, the reason this is a but what about parable uh, or why we wanted to talk about it, I think, is, is mainly has to do with the way that we're prone to read it, which is a warning that money is bad and that doing church things is good, right? And I... <laughs> I think even just having this on the heels of, of you sharing your story, Laura, is helpful. I'm just realizing like, okay, I don't think that the solution then is more church, less hard work at your job uh, because we can make more church just as big of a problem, right? It's not just putting on a white shirt and pants and going to the synagogue on Fridays. Uh, I don't think your churches do that. My Our church doesn't either, but that's, who knows? Uh, my neighbor's church does that, right? Like there's there's all sorts of instances where... Um, not only different religions, but the Christian church might be prone to, to read this that way as well. But we don't think that that's the point here. Uh, and I'm going to let Laura tell you why. Ooh, the no-look pass. You like that? That's coming to you, Laura. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. Oh. Um, I'm still thinking about my war horse. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, especially with these harder p- passages that seem to all be in Luke, I feel like Luke really... He, He's a doozy. He, he did he did a number <laughs> in his gospel, um, but I think it's important to see the context that it's coming in. Um, we have this kind of tricky passage, uh, right, where Jesus is kind of coming at this guy who's who's talking about wanting more of an inheritance right before what Davis read, uh, but right after it, uh, we have him talking to his disciples. This is really just immediately after it. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
for life is more than food and the body more for clothing. And then he talks about how, you know, the birds of the earth are taken care of. And so why wouldn't I take care of you Um, and the flowers and all of that? So I feel like this kind of passage is not supposed to be read as a law, as something to do better or to just to start doing, um, but more of um, a honestly like a balm for our anxiety. Um, it's it's not a way to God. It's not a way to holiness and sanctifi- sanctification, but it's a way to escape kind of that keeping up with the Joneses mentality. It's a mm. way to release your white knuckle grip um, from feeling like you have to try so hard in order to please God or or kind of get into his inner circle. Um, and so I think being able to read it like that and, and you know, he's saying he's like, what is all this going to be after you die? And and it's not just, OK, now go get rid of it. It's just like, no, what does that matter? Like the things that matter, I am I'm here. I've got you. I've already done Um and, you know, despite how much we try, we can't break that. Uh, we can't lose that. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like just making sure that we're reading the context um, so we can really see the light that Jesus is trying to shine on things like this. And very practically, I think just uh, looking at the language of, you know, kingdom and what what we're building, that that invitation out of ourself is is a real one. And it's a it is a balm because I don't know, every day for me that ends in why I wake up and I feel like it's all up to me. And I gotta be reminded of I gotta be revived in many ways of the truth that uh A, it's not, and B, um, if it was, take stock of that kingdom that you're building, because it's not an awesome kingdom for other people, right? <laughs> like you and I have the tendency to look like this rich fool. Which is that, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm just working for myself and the people that um, I provide for at best. But even friends and neighbors, let alone, quote unquote, enemies or people we just don't like, they don't benefit from this kingdom of self that you and I are constantly trying to build. Uh, and instead, Jesus is inviting us into something so much bigger of saying, listen, mm. the kingdom that I'm building, which started on my dead body 2000 years ago and has been changing lives by transforming dead things uh, to life. Uh, this involves everybody. This involves um, everybody being invited in and being given something that they cannot earn for themselves. Be rich in that. Be rich in the the new song of transcendent, imminent, unfailing love uh, that I've been singing since the beginning of time and saying the loudest at my death and will continue to sing on into eternity. Build your life on that. That's a sturdy foundation to build uh, or even to partake in building a kingdom. Uh, or better yet, in the language of Luke 12, 32, receive a given kingdom. You're not even building. You're receiving something far better than you can build for yourself. Yeah, I think I saw a lot of the same things. I One of the things I like to look at in these kind of parables and that stick out to me is a lot of the self-sufficiency language. So when the person says, what shall I do? Oh, I know. I'll tear down this barn and build up a bigger one. And even God, the God figure or God himself at the end, when he refers to these people, says, uses the phrase for themselves. So who these people who store store up for themselves. Um, and so that, that to me is, um, you know, 
kind of a um, a red flag of sorts that 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 kind of um, waves around workspace righteousness. And so I think like reading this on a spiritual level, like you guys were saying, is important, you know. And and I actually find comfort in it having. Um, uh, like you're saying, Laura, it's not a law lesson, but I think it can serve a law purpose in kind of bringing us low, you know, and because people hoard who hasn't been ungenerous before, you know, who hasn't hoarded, whether it's it is our 401ks or it's, you know, um, get more that we could give to church or other people or time. Yeah, I just think of people that are hurting in my life and how I haven't been generous sometimes. And everyone can probably say that there's something like that, right? So I think in one sense, this, this is Jesus saying, this is the state of affairs for the human race for all time. People hoard. This is what they do. But my son won't do that. Jesus doesn't. Um, and we work for ourselves. We work to build up. But Jesus works for others. And so I think that that's really where the gospel, I think, flies in uh, for us is, um, is this is more about how Jesus will not just be a rabbi and a teacher for us and showing us how to how to live better and have our best life now, but this is a, a parable that, like all scripture, Jesus would fulfill and kind of um, and be the ultimate one to kind of um, remedy or to be a, a to be a better version of. So, so I think like sometimes we have to hear that we're a fool, you know, like God is saying here: wisdom is trusting God for salvation, not working for it. It's uh, it, it is not storing up things like years of walking with Jesus perfectly. Like we're not storing that up to our benefit. We're trying to live as though God's grace is sufficient and in our weakness to kind of circle back to your story, Laura, it's, that actually is what sanctification is. You know, it's being brought to the end of ourself and it's growing through that. Like you, like you would say that was a, or you did say that that was a good thing. Like there was sweetness, you know, in, in being brought low. And I think every Christian's going to have some version of that story, big or small, explicit or implicit, you know, uh, seasonal or day-to-day. -day. I mean, it's going to be different, of course, person to person, but Paul had it, you know, and, and we have this, we have this story where we, we have stored up, but the son of God came to save us from our trophy cases and from trusting in our strength and from the money we make and the works that we do. And, um, and in the end, God does not live in storehouses. He, he, he lives in a big house with a huge dinner table with a place set for you and me. And he went there to prepare a room for us because he loves us and we're his children. And, and he paid for it with his own blood. Uh, he doesn't expect anything from us, but just to receive that. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Dan Zeller and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do consider dropping us a rating wherever you get your podcast to join us in giving away the always better news of God's grace. Thanks again for being with us. On Christ the Son.